think we may have done 12, is that right? That's not a prime number. <laughs> 11 is a prime number. I don't know if the, the, they'll reach heaven. Oh, three is four, four times three. One's a three, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> Welcome everybody to tonight's program. Um, uh, I saw a cartoon. I'm a fan of the New Yorker cartoon, so here's one that I saw. It's somewhat relevant to the spiritual process. There you see, uh, I guess it's a cocktail party. Bunch of guys standing around chatting, and one of them says to the other, so what inspired you to study engineering? Get married, find a job, move to the suburbs, have a couple of kids and grow old. <laughs> I won't explain it, <clears throat> but I, I liked it. <clears throat> so I'd like to begin my programs by uh, remembering my guru, Swami Muktananda, who began all of his programs by saying in Hindi, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would always say that his religion was to worship the divinity in another person, and that real spirituality has to include loving others, loving yourself, and loving others. So in that spirit, I want to welcome you all to tonight. And if you've been coming to my programs, you know that I, I, I'm doing an endless series. I don't know how many years it's been going, at least uh, 40, 40 years or something. Oh, maybe, yeah. Um, uh, on the great beings. Back uh, I, in my academic days, I was in Chicago, and I met uh, the American teacher Ramdas at a private dinner party. And I spoke to him that night. And from that conversation, I learned that there were great beings alive now, beings of the level of the Buddha, Jesus, beings who had attained uh, self-realization, who attained enlightenment, who had walked and journeyed on the spiritual path and reached the end, that that wasn't something that was just 2,000 or 5,000 years old, but a, a, a current possibility. And when I heard that, I was fired up to go and meet one and to learn from them. Uh, and, and so uh, it's always been the essence of my approach to spirituality is uh, to salute these great beings and to see their teachings. You know, They come in many shapes and sizes. Uh, they, their teachings sometimes go to the devotional side, sometimes to the intellectual side, sometimes practical, they give techniques and practices, but they all have reached the goal. And they all say to every one of them, men and women, they say that within every person there is this potential and this possibility. But we get lulled asleep by the allure of the world and by the confusion that people have about what the meaning of life is. And so we don't pay attention to the basics, the essence. Who am I? What am I about? What is the meaning of my life? And how can I attain peace? How can I attain happiness? So we ignore those questions and we think instead, 
How can I get a new car? How can I get a nice house? How can I marry someone? And how can I uh, uh, have a big career? We think of those things, but we don't think, who am I and what can I do inside myself? <clears throat> so I salute these great beings, and I do programs from them. Uh, my favorite one, of course, is my own guru, Baba Muktananda. But tonight, um, I'm doing a, a program I do maybe twice a year, and that is Zen Buddhism. I've always been a great fan of Zen. I love the way Zen is. Zen is about gurus and disciples. Um, Zen is about uh, learning in a practical way and attaining the goal through practice and through meditation. And that's a very good approach uh, <clears throat> to meditation. Uh, but tonight I thought I'd do something a little different because Zen goes back. Zen, there was, uh, Buddhism was, uh, grew up in India uh, around five, uh, 500 BC, 500 years before Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> and then uh, a, uh, a monk named Bodhidharma brought Buddhism to China. Uh, and then uh, certain uh, Japanese uh, monks went to China and learned from the Chinese practices of a precursor of Zen called Chan. I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but what that'll do. Uh, and um, they brought it back and it became Zen in Japan. But it's all a straight line, goes back, and the source of all of that is the Buddha. So I thought I'd do a little bit on the, the life of the Buddha and then to my favorite Zen practitioner, Suzuki Roshi. Uh, so the Buddha was born in North India. Maybe we're, maybe it's in Nepal now, I'm not sure. But he was the, he was the prince of a small kingdom. Uh, <clears throat> and he had a very charmed youth. He had everything, but the astrologist told his father that if he found out about the the uh, harsh realities of life, uh, he would leave his throne his, and become a monk. And that's the worst thing his father could think of because he was going to inherit the throne of this little kingdom. Um, so he kept him away from uh, all the harsh realities of life. And then one day he, uh, he got his charioteer to take him outside the walls of his palace and around the streets of the surrounding villages. And he saw the harsh realities. He saw famously uh, an old person, uh, a, a, a funeral procession, and someone who was sick. So he became aware that there was old age, disease, and death. And he asked his charioteer, what are these things? He says, oh, that's old age, disease, and death. He says, well, why do these people have it? He says, everybody gets it. He says, will I get it? He said, yes, everyone. No one is uh, immune to these things. And the Buddha, being a very high and refined sensibility, said, well, if that's the case, that there's old age, disease, and death, I can't live my life as though these things don't exist. I have to get to the bottom of it and solve the existential problem of life. <clears throat> 
I have to see how I can find happiness despite these, this awful fact. So he ran away. And he left, much to uh, his family's chagrin. Uh, and um, he went off to uh, find the truth. And he found various teachers of the time. There are different kinds of yogis and gurus around. And he studied with them. And he tried different doctrines on at the time. And finally, uh, the story goes, he didn't find success uh, anywhere. And finally, he decided he would sit down under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya in India. And he would not, it, it's called in the, in, the, in the story, it's called Buddha's Resolve. He sat there and he said, I will not leave my seat until I attain supreme enlightenment. That's resolution, isn't it? Imagine that if you decided to sit in your uh, seat and say, I'm not going to leave here until I crack the code of the universe. I break through my suffering. I break through my ignorance. I break through my worry and my fear. And I attain enlightenment. You'd be sitting a long time. Probably. You could probably get up quickly and turn on Foxtel, <laughs> Netflix. No. But anyway, the, supposedly the Buddha did that and he sat there and, uh, and he went through a powerful inner struggle and then he attained enlightenment. So here we have a photograph of him uh, sitting under the Bodhi tree. And he's obviously attained enlightenment because he got a, a, a halo that point and he's serene and he has become uh, the Buddha <clears throat> and then um, yeah so I'm going to uh, tell you about what happened after that it's after his enlightenment he sat under the Bodhi tree and he basked in bliss <clears throat> and um, during this time, he, uh, he was receiving inner teachings from the non-self, <laughs> from the self, we would say. Uh, and he, uh, he understood about the path. He understood his new state of consciousness. And while he was sitting there, two uh, merchants were traveling by on business. And they happened to see him, and they could see by just looking at him, that he was a radiant being in a high spiritual state. He was just radiating light. Uh, <clears throat> and they decided to learn from him. They took refuge in him and his teachings, and they became his first uh, non-monastic followers. <clears throat> and they asked for instruction, and, uh, and he gave it to them. Then he started to think, should I teach or not. This is a big watershed in the Buddha's life. Uh, he thought about what he'd learned during his, uh, up to his enlightenment, and what he'd seen, what he understood. And he, uh, he, he saw that the truth that he'd, he'd uh, attained was very subtle, hard to grasp, hard to see, fantastically excellent, uh, but 
inaccessible to the normal mind, to mere logic. Uh, and it, could, it was so subtle that only the rare person could understand it. This is what he thought. He said, I don't know, it's so difficult that what's the use of my going out to teach? So should he teach it and reveal it to other people? And uh, he had a lot of doubts about it and struggled within himself. And in the text, they, um, they say that he had a conversation with God, Brahma. We don't have to take that literally. Uh, but this is a dialogue that comes down from the Pali texts. And uh, we'll cut down to the essentials here. Uh, there are two, there's two parts of this struggle. One is the desire just to be left alone and bask in his own bliss and not be troubled by having to teach others. And the other side is compassion, altruism, the desire to help everyone. He saw that this could be of help. So he was, this was a struggle. And so in this dialogue, the Buddha says, this world delights in the pleasures of the senses. My teaching aims at the renunciation of all attachments. See, he saw that you had to renounce attachments. Now, that's a, a very difficult teaching for people to get, isn't it? So he thought, I, I can't teach that. <laughs> and the destruction of craving. If I were to teach this doctrine, which goes against the stream, and people did not understand me, that would be a weariness and a trouble for me. <laughs> and Brahma said, the world will perish if the fully enlightened one does not decide to teach his doctrine. May the exalted one therefore teach it. There are some beings with little dust in their eyes. There are some who are ready for this teaching, a few. If they do not hear the Dharma, the Dharma was the path, the, the law, the path, you know, they will be lost. But if they hear the Dharma, they will attain to liberation. Isn't that charming? That's at least a, a psychological approximation of what went on in his, in his mind. <clears throat> anyway, the, this, this aroused compassion in the Buddha. And with the cry, let the doors to deathlessness be opened to all who are able to hear. He agreed to teach. He suddenly jumped up from his seat. Let the doors to enlightenment be opened and went off. <clears throat> and then uh, Brahma liked that and he bowed to the Buddha and circled around him three times clockwise uh, and left. <clears throat> so then the Buddha thought, who am I going to teach first? So he thought of his the, the gurus that he learned with, you know, they, their knowledge was only partial. There was one called uh, Alara Kalama, and another one called Udaka Ramaputta. But he found that they were both dead, so he couldn't teach them anything. Next he thought, <laughs> next he thought the five companions of ascetic, his ascetic period, uh, who were staying uh, in the deer park near Varanasi. <clears throat> and Bodhgaya is about 200 kilometers from Varanasi. And so they were staying near Varanasi, um, Benares, Varanasi, Kashi. <clears throat> and um, during the Buddha's initial stages, he went through intense asceticism. You can see images of the starving Buddha. 
or is all skin and bones because they did fasting and uh, all kinds of austerities because the path of austerities is one kind of path. Um, and so he tried that out and it didn't work. And in fact, uh, supposedly he was given some uh, rice kir, milk and uh, rice and sugar, and he drank that and he was, he was given nourishment. Then he could meditate and he attained enlightenment because of that. But anyway, uh, he thought those, those fellows that he, he uh, had done sadhana with, done practice with, could get it. They'd grasp it. Um, <clears throat> so he determined to uh, devote himself to his missions, and he set out for Benares on foot. And uh, the writer says that uh, he had to beg for food every morning, and it was hot midday hours. It must have taken at least two weeks to get, uh, to get there, 200 and 10 kilometers as the crow flies, probably 250 by foot. Uh, so these were his, uh, he met his, his guys. Their names were Kodana, Badia, Vapa, Mahanama, and Asaji. Uh, they were not at all happy to see him. Uh, he deserted them from their austerity. He, he really said, this is not getting me anywhere and he left them, so they were a little pissed off at him. Um, <clears throat> they, um, he approached them in the deer park, uh, and they agreed together not to pay him honor, not to rise to meet him, and so on. But as he approached, the story goes, they were so overwhelmed by his presence, because he was an enlightened one now, by his dignity, by his light, uh, that they all treated him with great courtesy then. And he told them, I've discovered the way to liberation and immortality. Uh, and I've realized the truth, he told them. And they were a little skeptical. How could it be that he'd ab abandoned the, the path they thought was right, which is asceticism, self-starvation, self flagellation kind of, uh, in favor of a life of luxury. And how could he have they, he attained the truth? But he said to them that he hadn't gone to a life of abundance. Uh, and he, he then preached a sermon, uh, which became the famous sermon on the turning of the wheel. So we have him preaching to them in the deer park. This is the first, there he is. Terribly enlightened, isn't he? <laughs> and he's preaching this uh, <clears throat> famous sermon on the turning of the wheel. This, uh, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a great image, the turning of the wheel of, of Dharma. Here's the... Uh, See, that's the wheel. It'd be a little hard to... It looks, it looks like a ship, ship's wheel. Uh, and, then, um, and then the next one... Well, we'll... So we'll get to this in a little bit. The spokes of the wheel are all the different aspects of, of the path. But the, the, um, this is a metaphor of the time. It's like our internet. <laughs> like our internet, 
the wheel was the highest technology. And in the ashrams there, uh, fellows like Yerush were going around making sure all the wheels were good. <laughs> you can turn that one off. And uh, so, and so as the turning of the wheel would be movement to a new phase. And the wheel is the chakra. Uh, so, uh, and so in this talk, he, uh, he presented the Dharma as the middle path, the path between extremes. Uh, he said, this is the Buddha, there are these two extremes, monks. <clears throat> which one, which one who has left the world should not pursue, for monk? Which two? On the one hand, giving himself up to indulgence and sensual pleasure, this is base, common, vulgar, unholy, unprofitable. On the other hand, giving himself up to self-torment. This is painful, unholy, and also unprofitable. So on the one hand, indulgence. The other is uh, too much uh, austerity. What? Deprivation. Deprivation. He says, uh, he says the Buddha is talking, both these extremes, monks, the perfected one has avoided having found that it is the middle way which causes one to see and to know, which leads to peace, to higher knowledge, to enlightenment and nirvana. So the famous Buddhist, the middle path. Middle path is a very interesting thing. Very often between two extremes, the middle path is the way. But uh, in spiritual life, it's neither of those extremes, but the middle path. And then he gave... Uh, the Four Noble Truths, the Four Aryan Truths. The first one, which is Dukkha, suffering. He says, this, monks, is the noble truth of suffering. <laughs> I always laugh. The Buddha has great discovery. There is suffering. You know, I always think, great, Buddha, you did well. All that meditation, that's what you came up with? Tell me another one. <clears throat> but, you know, <clears throat> listen, birth is suffering, old age is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and distress are suffering. Being joined to that which one does not like is suffering. Being separated from what one likes is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In short, the empirical personality is suffering. That's a pretty dismal outlook. We are in a situation of suffering. So that's the first one, suffering. <clears throat> Second noble truth is the origin of suffering. Where does suffering come from? And this is what he said, this is a direct quote. This monks is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is that craving, 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 desire, which gives rise to birth and bound up with pleasure and passion, now, <clears throat> now here, now here, finds ever fresh delight. It is craving, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. <clears throat> so craving, desire, and this is, uh, you know, in, in the Western tradition, the Stoics found this too, that desire is the source, uh, and they made every effort to 
to uh, deal with that fact. But there's two more noble truths, thank heavens. Uh, the best one is the third, maybe, maybe the fourth. Third, he says, this monks is the noble truth of the ending of suffering. The ending of suffering. It is the complete removal and extinction of this craving. It's forsaking and giving up abandonment and detachment from it. That, some, that inside of us is this drive which leads to suffering. And so the solution is to give it up. And then the question arises, how do you do that? It's so much part of me. And it's the fourth noble truth. This monks is, is the noble truth of the path leading to the extinction of suffering. It is the noble eightfold path. In other words, in our terms, sadhana, spiritual practice. Essentially, to live right, to think right, to do right, to meditate and know the self. This is the path of sadhana, and you can overcome suffering through this path. So beginning in a very dismal way, the Buddha's teaching is very optimistic, very hopeful that through this mess, he puts his finger on, on the difficulties of our situation, the human condition. Um, but then he says there is a path through it. And the eightfold path of the following, um, you can look at that, uh, that wheel again. They're all there. <clears throat> right view. I'm going to interpret it. I'm not a, I'm not a Buddhist scholar. Um, but I have great belief that what we know in the yoga that we do encompasses all of these things. So loosely considered, right view. Right view would be the right understanding of the way the universe is that through looking inside, knowing, I would say, the self, uh, we can attain it by, by understanding that, what, that things, certain things lead to upliftment and certain things bring you down, and knowing the difference between those things and making uh, that distinction would be right view. Right resolve. Right resolve would be, I want to attain the self. I want to know the truth. I want to attain spirituality. Not, I want this, I want that, and the other thing. Those are okay, but they're not the essential right resolve. That I want to live my life so that I attain something permanent and inward. Right speech, to speak uh, words of truth and words of love. <clears throat> right action. That speaks for itself. Right livelihood, that your profession somehow uh, consonant with your spiritual ambition. Right effort to do practice, good practice. There's all kinds of practice. Like asceticism is effort, but it doesn't lead to the, the goal. But a proper kind of meditation, self-inquiry, shiva process, all these things are right effort, and right mindfulness. Mind culture, to cultivate the mind. Not let the mind run amok. You've been given this mind, and it has all kinds of tendencies. doesn't mean they're all good. And to make the mind work perfectly, get rid of tearing thoughts, thoughts that 
turn against you. Get, work, work so that you get rid of worry, you get rid of fear, you get rid of jealousy, you get rid of anger. You move towards the proper way, the way that uplifts you. This is mind cultivation. This is very hard work, but can be done. And finally, right concentration would be deep meditation, knowing your essence, knowing yourself, knowing the truth. So this was what he taught on that first time. That's a lot to teach, isn't it? On that first famous uh, turning of the wheel of Dharma. We can turn that. <clears throat> so the five of them listened to his words with breathless attention, uh, he writes. And, and it, even as he spoke, one of them, Kodana, gained full understanding of the teaching. So one immediately became enlightened. He was top, <laughs> top flight. Soon afterwards, he asked the Buddha to accept him as a disciple, and the Buddha accepted him as a monk with the following formula. Come, monk. The doctrine has been well explained. Lead a life of purity in order to attain the end of suffering. <clears throat> so Kondana was the first monk in the history of Buddhism. And uh, this ordination marks the beginning of the order of monks, which uh, existed today. And soon he instructed Vapa and Badia, and they understood it too. And they too were accepted as monks. And uh, these three went off, and they went, on, they went around to gather alms, because they, they begged for food and so on. Uh, and meanwhile, the Buddha gave private instruction to the two dummies of the class, <laughs> Mahanama and Asaji. <clears throat> Mahanama said, um, Buddha, can you say that again? I didn't get all that. <clears throat> anyway, after a while, they also got the insight and they, uh, they wanted to become monks and he, he gave them that. <clears throat> now there were six bhikkhus, uh, renunciates, swamis in the world, the master and his five disciples. So uh, the writer was speculating, why would they get it so easily? And, and he said either it was a better time when people were more ready, or cynically he said they might have thought that just understanding it intellectually was the same as attaining it. Um, and we know that understanding it is good. It's good to understand it intellectually, but it's a, it's a far cry from uh, attaining it viscerally, where you in a second education way, the difference between first education, which is intellectual, and bringing it into your being. Um, <clears throat> so, anyway, that's the story. So they all became enlightened. Isn't it a nice story? It's a great story. Yeah. Did anybody become enlightened hearing that story? <laughs> You should, you should have. <clears throat> okay. So now uh, I'll do a few question answers with our, our modern Zen Buddhist, Suzuki Roshi, who um, is a, a wonderful Japanese monk who went to um, one of the first ones who brought it uh, to America in the 1959. 
you know, Zen, Zen was very big among the beat generation. You know, Jack Kerouac and, and, and uh, Ginsburg and all of those people practiced Zen. Zen was very popular there. <clears throat> and Suzuki Roshi was one of the first ones there. And so these are some question answers with Suzuki Roshi. Okay, you can put him away. <clears throat> okay, here we go. Student, I'm very attached to my practice, which is essential to my life. And basically the practice in Zen is uh, shikantaza, just, they say just sitting. Sitting zazen. Just, they, and it's a wonderful meditation. They say when you sit, just sit. And actually you can get a, a new insight into meditation. It's not a doing, you just sit. And whatever arises is what arises. And you don't get sucked in by what arises, but you just sit with it. And just sitting, you can try that in meditation sometime. Just sitting, just sitting. And when you just sit, Suzuki Roshi would say, you are one with the Buddha. Because the Buddha sat, and you sit, so you're one with the Buddha. And that's it, there's nothing to be attained, you just sit. <clears throat> he says, uh, my practice is essential to my life, however, when I talk about Buddhism or the Buddhist scriptures, it seems like something else. It feels separate from my life and my practice. Can I bring these together? So the practice is one thing, but the theory is another. Suzuki Roshi says, I felt that way myself for a pretty long time. It's rather difficult to communicate some feeling through my talk. That is why the old masters twisted their students' noses or hit them. <laughs> right there, what are you thinking about? And they hit them. Zen is famous for that. They have a stick, they go around and smack you, and, they, and all the Zen stories are like that. Suddenly the, the master does something uh, violent to the student. <clears throat> it's it's um, not politically correct these days. Um, but um, right there, what do you think? In short, this, this is the point. I am going around and around the point, so I'm using words. We speak of scratching an itchy foot with our shoe on. It doesn't help so much, but even so, I have to talk. So he's distinguishing between intellectual knowledge and actual knowledge, experiential knowledge. It's like scratching your foot with the shoe on. <laughs> so, but then he says, but even so, we have to use language. Another one, student, Roshi, what is the difference between you and me? That's a bold question, isn't it? Suzuki Roshi, there is difference and no difference. That's very Zen. <clears throat> Whatever they ask you, you say, there is difference and no difference. <clears throat> that is why we practice together. Because there is some difference, we practice together. And because we are not different, we practice together. If you are completely different from me, there is no reason why you should practice with me. And if we are completely the same, there is no reason why we should practice together. That's very wonderful. <clears throat> if you have, I remember once um, Aurobindo was teaching someone, 
and uh, he told him how, how to go about his sadhana, control his mind, and so on. And the student said, well, I can't do that. It's easy for you because you're a great siddha. You're a great being. And Aurobindo said, you know, you're making my life useless uh, because you're denying uh, my purpose. The truth is that I was like you. And um, anyone can do this if you just follow it. Uh, I wasn't anything special. If I became special, it's because I, I followed this, the teaching. So he says, we're similar and we're not similar. <clears throat> because we're different, we practice our way. And because we are originally the same, we practice our way. Not different and different. Because we're essentially the same, we can practice. And because we're different, there's something for you to grow in. This kind of thing, he says, is not easy to understand. Traditional practice starts from the source of the teaching, which is absolute, which is non-duality. We would say everything begins in the self, pure consciousness. Everything begins with consciousness. Usually you're attracted to something through your eyes or nose, through sight or smell or some form, but not through this original source of the teaching. So the self is beyond the senses. It's even beyond the mind. It can't be expressed, but it can be directly experienced. He says, the original source is not something that can be described. So we say, tongueless speech. We're talking about something that is impossible to talk about. That's why it is called not lecture. We can explain this with words, but we're explaining what is beyond words. So we call these words the finger pointing to the moon. This is the delightfully Zen thing. This is the finger pointing to the moon. If you understand what the moon is, the finger is not necessary anymore. What you should understand is not my words. You should realize by your own experience what I mean. So the words of the guru hit something inside and you experience that. But the words themselves are not the point. It's the experience, the finger pointing to the moon. You are blind to this point. If you are blind to this point, then you feel I'm talking about something in a sophisticated way that is the so-called Buddhist way. That's a very interesting line. He's saying, if you don't understand that I'm talking about a direct experience, then your mind will grasp all the details of doctrine and belief that have been written in the scriptures, and you'll think it's very sophisticated, it's the Buddhist way, but you won't have the essence of it. And you can be completely ignorant of all those nuances, intellectual nuances, but have the experience. He says, the Buddhist way is not these words, but the meaning behind these words. Zen is particularly that way, because Zen always emphasizes not theory, but practice, but sitting. <clears throat> How are you doing, okay? Yeah? Are you Zen dad? I got a couple more questions. Uh, okay. Student. Roshi. Roshi means teacher. Every animal has a way of living, of eating, of raising its young, of relating to its world, 
that is in keeping with the particular dharma or Tao of its being, its particular nature, you could say. Doesn't mankind also have a particular way of living and eating and raising its young that is in keeping with our dharma or Tao, with our nature, proper nature? It's a very good question, isn't it? In this world, we see so many people living completely out of harmony with what's natural and what's good. <clears throat> Suzuki Roshi. There is a dharma, but it can't be given a fixed form, like a set of rules or principles. You can't just make a prescription for it. We have to make our best effort to stay in touch with the real dharma, which is what these words are pointing to. There is a path. There is a dharma. There is a path. He says, words are necessary, but even though they're necessary, we shouldn't think they're complete. We should make constant effort to produce new dharma, new precepts. We say, this is human life, but this human life is for today, not tomorrow. Tomorrow we must have better ways to live. This kind of effort should be continued. When we feel bad, it means we should improve our way. But you should not expect a perfect dharma that says clearly you should or you shouldn't. No one can insist on their own way, but we should appreciate their effort to improve the dharma. Does this make sense? <clears throat> Student. You say that we must always, every day, improve our way, make our best effort. I've also heard you say, for the true teaching to be passed on, the disciple must surpass the teacher. Can we carry on the Dharma, even if we don't surpass the teacher? <laughs> Suzuki Roshi, yes. Surpass is also a dualistic word. To, so we should not stick to it. Don't get hung up on surpassing. There's no reason why I should feel good or bad if you surpass me. <clears throat> to talk about which is better is just words. Even to create the page of a new dharma is very difficult. Even though you feel that you've invented something new, the Buddha is always waiting there for you. Buddha will say, oh, come here, good for you. Come nearer to me, I have some more things for you. It's very hard to surpass his teaching. It's a very mysterious Zen is, isn't it? <clears throat> but what is this dharma? What is this dharma that he's talking about? What is this right way of life that he's talking about? <clears throat> we call it knowing the self, knowing the shakti. There is a, a force that's hidden within hidden behind our normal experience, deeper than the senses and deeper than the mind that one can come in touch with through meditation, through awakening. And when we come in touch with that, that force becomes a guide for our life. That becomes the dharma for our life. We can, we, it's, it becomes a, a kind of GPS for our life. When we're in harmony with the shakti, with that energy, then our life moves beautifully. And when we lose touch with it, because we get caught in fear or desire or something, then we lose touch with that, and then things go wrong. So we have to quiet down and get in touch with that 
what they call the still small voice, that energy, that energy of the depths, and then and follow that. And like the Buddha, we should follow it even if our bones crack. Doesn't matter. It's very important to find that that sweet spot within, and it exists within every person. And the only way you can find it is by turning within and discovering it. And it's a vibration. It's called the Spanda principle. It's an upliftment. It's love. It's joy. It's it's an energy. And it exists very palpably within. And through meditation, we d discover that. So let's meditate for 10 minutes. <clears throat> and we'll be good Zen yogis. And we'll sit up. And we'll just sit. And we'll look within. And I'm saying that within every person there is this profound place, this vibration, this joy, this peace, this love. Let yourself become quiet. And the mind will throw up all kinds of things, fantasies, memories, fears, desires, chatter, irrelevancies. Just let them slip away, let, them become, let the mind become still. The quieter it is, the more this energy of the depths can present itself. And if you have trouble with that, just say the mantra of our tradition, Om Namah Shivaya. Just repeat that, Om Namah Shivaya, and that'll help calm the mind. So we'll meditate on the self. No one can ever meditate on yourself for you. Everyone has to take this journey for themselves to discover the true self, to come in touch with this, this true self. 